looking at Kelsey for commitment to community. And just a reminder for this thing, it's not like the aim behind this is not like uh, everyone look how cool Kelsey is. Please don't. She's she's all right. Um, but it's more like a, we see certain people that are very gifted in certain areas, and we want to ask them what their motivations are, and kind of like an encouragement for the rest of us. So, uh, first question for Kelsey. <laughs> she's, she's, she's totally impromptu. She's got notes. Um, so, okay, with, as it comes to commitment to community, we know that you are like an incredible extrovert. Love people. Love to hang out. But uh, for those of us that are less inclined to uh, extroversion or to just hanging out with people, some of us are uh, not going to point out people. There's some people that don't like community at all. What are your... <laughs> What are your convictions that, that lead you to seek community? So um, I think in college, um, I was kind of reflecting on this today and um, yesterday. I think in college, I think I've learned like three big purposes for community. And I think it's really important to get them right and to get them in the right order um, to have the right convictions about entering into community. So um, the first thing that I kind of think I've learned in college is that committing to Christian community is actually not about me. Um, a lot of times I think that we can get caught up into thinking like, I'm going to join, like, I'm going to join this campus ministry because it's going to benefit me. And like, that is absolutely a benefit of committing to community, but it's not the primary reason that we commit to community. So um, the first um, the first conviction that I had, I think, about community that kind of drives how I interact with people is that um, being in community is, like, kind of actually how God designed us to be. Like, God designed us to be a corporate body that builds his kingdom. Um, and so um, I was kind of just thinking about that, and I was thinking about how cool it is that, like, not any single one person perfectly displays the character of God. Um, and that's why um, he's gifted us differently, and it's why he has um, created men and women and why people come from different backgrounds. And um, So the number one conviction I have, I think, about committing to community is, like, one, it's not primarily about you. It's about, like, building the body. And then um, the second conviction I have is that um, I think that committing to community is important because... Um, we are the world's window into God's kingdom. Um, and so um, as we interact with one another and as we love one another, um, we are literally giving witness to those who don't know the Father, who the Father is by how we live. Um, so John 13 says, um, like, the world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And um, <laughs> I think um, I, that really, um, I had an experience, I was studying abroad um, a couple years ago, and I had a roommate who was uh, not a Christian, and I was just talking to her about some missionaries who I'd been communicating with there and kind of um, walking along uh, alongside and some mission trips that we were doing while I was over there. And I'll never forget, she just like looked at me one day and completely unprompted, she just said, man, you Christians really love differently. And it was like mm -hmm. that verse just like Sweet. came to mind. Um, so uh, I think the second conviction I have is that we commit to community because um, we're the world's window into um, God's kingdom. And then the third, obviously, is um, for our benefit um, and for God's glory. Um, but that cannot come first or you get the whole community thing wrong. That's yeah. kind of consequential and not the primary purpose. So. Yeah. That's good. That's really good. 
Um, my second question, I'm actually, I'm glad you said that, because my second question is, so maybe your main purpose isn't to get the benefits, but how have you seen personal growth mm-hmm. through the community that God's given you, be at the table, be at Sunnybrook, yeah. whatever it is, how, how have you grown or changed? Um, I think I have learned through, like, uh, a body of believers that God equips the church to fill the desires of the heart of man, like... Um, He fills them, but he empowers us to, like, help fill our brothers and sisters who are lacking that. Um, So when we feel lonely, like, we run to the Father, but we also get to receive the Father's, like, full sufficiency through our brothers and sisters who are empowered by him. Um, And also, I think I've, like, grown in my, like, faithfulness and obedience to God because I'm around people who are challenging me and who are keeping me accountable and who are speaking truth to me. Um, and I also think I've grown in my understanding of who God is because, like I said, um, I am not, praise the Lord, I am not the full picture of who God is. So when I see somebody else who's gifted entirely different than me and wired entirely different than me and who is my brother and my sister in Christ, I learn about God through them. So That's good. That's really good. And it's also like, it's kind of like even just the aim behind us doing this is like we see that you really are wired for community, so help us. Wired, maybe, maybe, yeah, you're, you're wired for a lot of things, I guess. Um, so, a third question, um, for those of us that may, may desire it, may not desire it, may be feeling totally fulfilled by community, may not, uh, what, what kind of encouragement or, or challenge would you give us about plugging in and just serving? Hmm. So I have like three words that I think are really important words. And the first like encouragement I want to offer you is like um, community takes time and it's not always natural (laughs) at first. Um, So if you're, I remember my freshman year coming to the table and just feeling like I'm just like dying to connect with somebody. I'm dying uh, like to really like find somebody who can I relate to and like praise the Lord that happened. Um, But it didn't happen right off the bat, and I think the reason that it did happen is because, um, number one, people were very intentional with me, and I had people who remembered my name and remembered to invite me places and remembered what was going on in my life, and more importantly, um, cared to know about how I was doing spiritually. So if you are um, wanting to grow in your, I guess, commitment to community, grow in your intentionality towards the people who are in your community. Um, the second thing I would say um, is that if you are not somebody who is uh, really extroverted, don't be afraid to initiate um, things. So ask people out to coffee. Ask people, um, hey, can I know a little bit more about you? Um, can we grab ice cream or something? I'm always down for ice cream. So um, don't be afraid to initiate. People will not turn you down, especially the people in this community. And uh, I know for a fact that Rachel, Scott, and Drew... Would love for you to ask to hang out with them. Um, and then the last thing is um, invite. Be an inviter. Be an open person. All, never, ever, ever um, be somebody who doesn't let somebody who's not in your circle into your circle. So. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this tonight. So. So a couple things before we get started, uh, some announcements. Two are related. One, I'm going to do my best to make it related to community, but it doesn't really have anything to do with community. Um, one, another, so we're, we're just coming off of talking about community. Uh, we want to announce that Reagan, I 
point you out, but I can't see you tonight, Reagan. <laughs> Raise your hand, Reagan. Okay, Reagan is uh, getting baptized. <laughs> She's getting baptized this Sunday at 5 at Sunnybrook. If you don't know that, look it up on your phone or ask any of it. A lot of us here, we go there. Um, and we want to invite everyone here to be a part of that so we could, as a community, experience this and come behind her. Um, and she wanted to invite uh, whoever wants to go to that. Um, afterwards, they're going to go look at Christmas lights. Apparently, that's something that some people like to do. It's not necessarily, not necessarily my thing, but there, there's going to be a group of people that are going to be leaving after the baptism to go watch some, go look at Christmas lights in Oklahoma City, downtown area. So, yeah, that's going on. And the third one, uh, community-related thing, is we have, a, <laughs> we have a free Bible that we wanted to give out. Um, so if anyone, it's a NIV reference Bible. Uh, Scott had it. He wanted to give it out to uh, someone who doesn't have it. So... If someone wants some that doesn't have one right now, raise your hand. I'll try and see you. If not, come see me afterwards and we'll give it out. So, all that being said, Drew. There was a hand. Where's the hand? I can't see the hand. He's over here. Okay. Drew will give it out if he sees Somebody the hand. Somebody seems to claim this at some point. This, yeah, if you, if you need one, if you've got an old one, if you've got a KJP. <laughs> then uh, you can come get your hands on this one and uh, read that for you. So, hey, uh, Scott is Scott is not in town. He's in uh, he's uh, he's in Branson actually with his family, um, playing the fiddle or something like that in Branson. And since he's not, he recorded a video for his teaching time. Spoiler alert: It does not have slow motion walking, so <laughs> it is not quite as cool. But you can deal with it anyway. And so uh, he'll do his teaching on video. Then we'll then we'll take a little break before we jump into the other stuff. So let me hit that. One quick announcement, and then we're going to jump into Second Corinthians chapter six, starting at verse three. So go ahead and get your Bibles and turn to Second Corinthians six. Um, here's my announcement. Next Thursday is we're having a, a, a Christmas dinner at my house. Love for you to come, starting at 6 p.m. And here's what I'd ask. Okay, this time we're going to try to dress up a little. Okay, if there's one thing I've learned from Anthony, it's that we need to raise the bar. We need to raise the bar a little bit. And the Lord's servant says, "Yes." <laughs> responded appropriately. Um, so we're going to dress up. We're going to okay, so come dressy casual, come dressy whatever you want, but no sweatpants, no ugly Christmas sweaters. We're not doing that this year. Um, we're trying something new. So anyway, come dressed up. Dinner at my house. Uh, there'll be a list online for some sides that maybe you can bring, um, but we're just hoping to have a good time and, and eat some food. So address will be there and all that stuff. Okay, that's my announcement. Let's jump into the text, chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. Let me read it. And then I have a story to tell. Paul says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So I don't know where you were in the spring of 2000, okay? But my wife and I were in Joplin, Missouri. I was was finishing up at Ozark Christian College. I had uh, had a... It was my second... (laughs) To last semester, so I had a summer and then my last semester in fall of 2000, 
And so I was looking to do an internship in the summer, and I found out about a church in California. They asked me to send a resume to apply for this internship. I'd never really had a resume, so I put one together. And I heard, you know, when you put together a resume, you, you, you list all these things that you've done, work, and in this case, ministry, and you make them sound like, you know, how do I say this, better than they really were. You know, you try to bolster up your experiences to make it sound like you've really done a lot when you really probably haven't. I hadn't. And so I, 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 it was probably three pages. There was paragraphs about the small group that I led of sophomore boys in high school or um, teaching, at a, um, teaching at a Sunday school for high school once or preaching at this small country church a few times. I really didn't have a whole lot of experience, but I just remember, I remember going to Staples. I remember getting this really fancy paper, and um, it had, like, texture and stuff. I thought it was really cool, and I created, like, a little, you know, binder thing, and I mailed it off, and it was whatever. I found out later that the guy that interned under, I got the, I got the internship, and he, I asked him, actually, he didn't, I didn't ask, he just kind of offered this information. He said, you know why, um, why I hired you, right? One is because Kyle said you'd be great. Two is because I was looking for one thing in your resume. I was like, really? What was it? He said, when you said, I don't know anything, but I want to learn, that's what I wanted to know. I'm like, oh. So basically all that stuff I said about all my experiences didn't matter. The fancy paper, he laughed at, he told me. He literally laughed at how, how fancy he thought it was. Um, and I learned a valuable lesson, that honesty and humility go a long way. Fast forward 10 years, and Sunnybrook um, was, was asking me to pray, prayerfully consider to come and be a college minister here at Sunnybrook. I was living in California. I'd never done college ministry, and so they asked me to send a resume just to see what kind of things I'd done and what kind of experience I had and what kind of strengths I have and to see if, if it would be a good fit for this church. And so I, I put together a resume. Um, this time I had 10 years of experience, and I sent it off, and, and they liked it. And I asked why, um, because I wanted to know the difference between the two. Because what they didn't want from me was to say something like, you know, I'm, I'm not really, really good at anything. I'm just here to learn. I don't know anything. i just, just here to learn. No, they didn't want that. They weren't going to move a family from California to Oklahoma because he was humble. What they wanted to know was, could I accurately assess my own strengths? What kind of experiences had I had? What kind of things had I learned that... Um, that would translate from the ministry out there to the ministry here. That's what they Was I a good fit? Could I accurately understand my own strengths and, and, and articulate them? I mean, those are the kinds of things they're wanting to know. And I learned another valuable lesson, that, that like being accurately honest, not, not being too high on yourself and not being too low on myself was really important. And, and somehow I figured that out in the 10 years. And I got the job, but I think it probably would have happened regardless. Um, Jim was a big fan. So, here I am. But it, it, it reminds me a little bit of what the section that we're about to, to enter into because Paul's going to give a list. And it's going to look a little bit like Paul is giving this um, resume list of his ministry. What we think sounds like maybe Paul is bragging. Only in the church, only in the church, think about this, would it sound like someone is bragging when they talk about the suffering they experienced. Okay. If you were getting a corporate job or if you're becoming an engineer, whatever, whatever field you're heading into, like you're, you're bragging about the suffering you experience is not going to go anywhere else than the church. Why? 
mainly because when we read the Bible, we see the suffering that they experienced. Paul's literally the poster child for this. And so somehow it's been like somehow because of Paul, we think Paul is bragging. And it's, it's just weird. Anyway, but Paul's not bragging. It'd be like what, um, what Paul's saying to the Corinthian church would be like me standing up and saying to you, hey guys, you should trust me because all the churches that I've been a part of, the previous churches I've been a part of, I was kicked out of. So you should trust me. I think you would look at me like and go, mm, I'm not sure that's helping you out, dude. Um, imagine if if Drew and Rachel and I at the parent breakfast when your parents show up, we start talking about all the things that we had gotten, all the churches we got kicked out of, all the cities that kicked us out, all the all the the bad things that happened to us in church ministry, you'd go, yeah, I'm not sure that's you're helping here. I think your parents would tell you, get out quick. Um, and it's not maybe not quite that strong, but it has a little bit of that because the background of this city is that the upward mobility and success and power and, and wealth, all those things, those were valued. And, and that started to seep into the church as, you, as we talked about the very first week of this study. And so the church kind of started to value that stuff too. And they started to buy into this idea that if anybody's going to be really good, they're going to be big and powerful. And they're going to have incredible experiences and, and miraculous things are going to follow them wherever they go. Not suffering. That, that can't be a sign. And Paul is coming back to going, hey, remember Jesus? Remember like the cross? And like that's the kind of ministry. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to suffer in the way he did. And so Paul says, this is how I've suffered. And this is why you can trust me. And so Paul gets into it. Now, um, uh, just a quick reminder why Paul writes this letter in the first place. Um, He's defending his ministry because he's going to talk about this from beginning to end. Weakness and suffering are a part of the ministry under this new new covenant. That true power is not found in strength, but is found in weakness. And Paul's dealing with people who discredit him because of because he seemed to be weak and had experienced suffering in ministry. And, more importantly for our section today, Paul recognized that if they reject Paul, and, and really when, when I say Paul, I mean Paul and Timothy, because Paul's going to talk about our ministry and us. Um, and so when Paul, when Paul says, Paul ultimately is saying, if they reject me in our ministry, they're rejecting the gospel. And so he says that to them. He says something similar to that to them in our section. So Paul's ultimate ultimate desire for the church in Corinth is not to miss the gospel because they misunderstood Paul's ministry. That's what, that's what he's concerned about here. He doesn't want them to miss the gospel simply because they misunderstood Paul's ministry. And so he, he starts off with this indicative statement And he says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in us. He's putting all of it on them, and rightly so. And so Paul uses this word commend. In fact, he uses that word eight times in in 2 Corinthians, more than any other book. You find it one one time in another book and twice in Romans, but Paul uses it eight times in this book because that is a big idea for Paul. And Paul lives in this tension of humility and authority. Here's what I mean by that. Paul will say things like, um, you, uh, or he'll say things like, you know, I'm the worst of all sinners. You know, like I consider myself nothing that I may, may find Jesus. 
Paul, Paul speaks with humility about his own sinfulness and his own story. But then also Paul speaks with authority and says, listen, I am a minister of the gospel. I am an apostle of God. I bring the authority with me. If you don't listen to me, you're missing the gospel. And because Paul is accurately understanding what happened to him. A miraculous experience on the road to Damascus. A miraculous um, training under Jesus himself. Like crazy. Um, The the apostles and the the disciples and the church in Corinth um, prayed for them. And the Holy Spirit selected Paul and Barnabas and anointed them with his spirit to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul recognizes the weight of his authority on his shoulders and the ministry that he carries with him. And so Paul speaks accurately um, and with humility, but with with authority. And so now we get to this list in verse 4. And this list has three parts um, that that I'll talk about here in a second. Um, But this verse could be better understood if, if you included the word great endurance at the end of that, that sentence. In fact, I think it should say something like this. We commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. And now, punctuation isn't in the Greek. So we so it, great endurance is just in the list of all the other things that are, he's about to list. But I think, I believe that great would be a heading over the rest of these things. And that's how I have it listed here on the board. And I have three reasons why that's the case. Um, real quick, because he modifies endurance with the word great. He doesn't do that with any of the immediate list following. It is plural. The rest of the, sorry, it is singular. Endurance is singular. The rest of the immediate list is plural. And thirdly, all the sufferings that he's going to talk about don't find a whole lot of meaning if there isn't great endurance through them all. And so that makes sense. And even towards the end, when he talks about these contrasting experiences, like the endurance to experience through all that stuff is proof of why they can trust his ministry. That's why I believe that's the case. Um, so, here is here's here's the three things. So Paul's here's what here's what kind of what I believe it is. Paul's proof that that the great endurance they experience is proof that they can be trusted, and therefore the gospel that he's preaching can be trusted. Again, that's Paul's heart, and it, and it starts with this that, that um, they experienced they experienced great suffering. Sorry, great endurance through. The suffering that they went through, and that's 4 through 5, 4b through 5. The suffering they went through, and we'll talk about that here in a second. Um, that there was some grace on display and from their life. He'll talk about a list of things there in verses 6 through 7. And then he'll have contrasting experiences that display, and I'll put this. God's power. That is a big idea. And you notice this word, suffering and power, are big ideas in 2 Corinthians. And so that's what I think is happening here. Let me get into it. Uh, Suffering that he went through, verses 4 through 5. He says, In afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hungers. So this list describes painful hard, exhausting experiences that Paul had in doing the ministry of the gospel. Now, um, we said a couple weeks ago, you know you're suffering for the gospel when 
you can make it stop simply by not doing what God wants you to do. Not preaching the gospel, not being a faithful witness, not talking to your co-workers, not bringing up um, this, this destructive sin in someone else's life. Like you can just ignore God and the suffering will go away. But Paul didn't. And Paul was faithful to God. And so because of that, he experienced the suffering. So th- this list is humbling to me. And it begs this question, do I believe in Jesus enough to be willing to do anything? And whatever he asked me to do, would I be willing to do it, even if it caused pain and struggles and exhaustion in my life? And that's a complicated answer for me. Because I don't know if you're like me, but oftentimes my pride gets in the way of saying yes to Jesus about some of these things. And so this has been a convicting study for me. Um, But I'm going to move on. Uh, So, grace on display. The grace that's given to him, he's going to talk, this list of things, I'm, I'm using the word grace, it's not really there, but I'm using it as this idea of a gift, of something that was bestowed upon, or something that was produced in Paul, that was evident to others, that was on display for others. And so he says, by purity and knowledge and patience and kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God, and, and with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And this list of graces that God, um, that God gave him was, was able to be seen in his life, was able to be on display for others to catch. And notice that these words are not words that first century uh, Roman culture would have valued. They're not. They're, they're things that um, are produced by the Spirit. And interesting that the Holy Spirit is listed here in this list, just kind of thrown in there. And, oh yeah, by the way, God is in there too. Um, but I think that's interesting. We want to make such a big deal about how the Holy Spirit isn't getting enough attention. And in this list, Paul's recognizing that, here, I think ultimately what he's saying is, you could tell that I had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was evident, was on display in my life. And that's all that Paul is saying there. And this last one, this last list is contrasting experiences that display um, that display God's power. And he says, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet we are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and not yet killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Now, a couple things jump out at me in this list. Um, that viewing Paul and Timothy's ministry with worldly lenses, okay, in a fleshly way, will cause you to see all the negative things that he listed there. Things like dishonor and slander and imposters and an unknown and dying and punished and sorrowful and poor and having nothing. Like, if you just read that list, this is, Paul, this is who you are. That's a, that's a detrimental list. That's an inaccurate list. But you see how someone could see that. In the same way that someone could see Jesus dying on a cross and go, okay, yeah, there's no way that's, that's God, because God wouldn't die a criminal's death. I'm watching him die. The soldiers are mocking him. God would not let that happen. 
And Paul used to see Jesus that way. In fact, he tells us that in, uh, in chapter 5, verse 16. He says, I, he says we for, should no longer regard anyone according to the flesh, like I used to regard Jesus or Christ according to the flesh. I regard him that, thus no longer. So he's saying, there's a, there's a spiritual way to see Paul's ministry, and that's what he's calling his people to, to see me with spiritual eyes. The other thing that, that comes out of this, that these, these contrasting realities speak to a kingdom perspective that I need to have. He talks about being true to God, um, being well-known, which I think what he means is being known by those that it matters to him, um, rejoicing in the midst of sorrow. We'll talk about that one a little bit later, Drew will. Making many rich. Like that, like what does it mean? Is, is my bank account increasing or am I increasing etern- eternal fruit in others? That only happens by God's Spirit working in and through me. He says, possessing everything yet having nothing. Paul recognizes what true possession is. Having God, having Jesus, having a community around, having the church, having, I mean, the things that matter to him ultimately throughout eternity, not um, the things that he can carry around. And I hear, I hear an echo of chapter 5, verse 15, when he says that Jesus died for all, but that those who live might, might no longer live for themselves, but for him. And that's what Paul's getting at. And then lastly, in, in chapter, oh, sorry, verses 11 through 13, Paul goes from defending his ministry um, to confronting uh, their openness. Paul kind of goes on the attack here, and he makes this indicative statement, and then he closes it by this imperative command. In fact, you could trace this back from chapter 3, maybe earlier, all the way through to, to, to here, is leading up for Paul to ask, to make this ask, this imperative command. He's going to ask them, do this, and it's going to be very imperative for him and for them to understand. And so let me read 11 through 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but are but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children. Widen your hearts also. So Paul's what is Paul's concern ultimately here? Is it his ego? It is, is it his popularity? Does he just want them to like him? Does he want them to like see all the hard work he's put in and like celebrate him? No. What Paul's concern is, is that when they're not open to he and Timothy, they're ultimately not open to the gospel. And I like, I like what the NIV, how the NIV puts verse 12. Um, he says, or it says, We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. So Paul's, again, calling them out, saying, listen, he's, he's, he's speaking at a heart level. He's listed all the, the, the resume. Now he's speaking to the heart. He's saying, listen, we love you guys. And we're not withholding that love. And you know that. But you're withholding yours from us. And then he asks this command. And he speaks sternly as a father to them. And he says, do not harden your heart to us but widen your heart to God. That's ultimately what he's asking. Open your heart. Widen your heart to God. And that's a, that's, a, that's a big idea. What does it mean 
to widen your heart, to open your heart to the gospel, to let Jesus come in, to let him take over? And I think that's a it's an important question to ask. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back, and, and Drew's going to talk a little bit more about what it means to, um, to, in, to with joy, um, how to have sorrow in the midst of joy, how to have joy in the midst of sorrow. Uh, so take a break, and uh, we'll come back together. takes a few minutes, uh, two, three minutes if you need to hit the bathroom or stand up and stretch forever and then we'll get started. And if you want a Bible, come talk to me. Okay, let's get started. <clears throat> I'm going to take, uh, take a quick moment just to make a couple announcements and then we'll jump into stuff. Um, first of all, there is... Uh, on Wednesday, once a month as a ministry, once a month as a ministry, we get together in here Wednesday mornings at 7 to pray for OSU, to pray for one another, to pray for this ministry, and uh, that's kind of open invitation to everybody, and, and we would love to have you in here. This will be our last one of the semester um, before, before we kind of wrap up, and so we'd love to have you here Wednesday morning at 7. We usually have coffee going in here, and, uh, and we'll pray together. So... Uh, hope you'll do that. We'll put out another reminder uh, on the Facebook group or whatever before we come. But, um, but yeah, mark your calendar for that, if you will. Um, second, we, um, we are coming up on this time of Christmas. And, and just like with any other holiday, uh, it's easy for things like Christmas to come and go. And, and for us to get... Um, whatever, excited about seeing family or stressed about going home or stressed about presents that we got to get or whatever it is, and, and uh, to kind of blow past this whole um, the creator of the universe becoming flesh and becoming a baby and, and coming to dwell among us um, so that we might become children of God, John says. And, and so that's, that's too big to let just fly past us. And, and so we, we try to, uh, I think last year was the first year, we, we, we got really intentional. We may have done some stuff uh, the year before that, but we got really intentional last year. We are trying to do some kind of Advent stuff together. And, uh, and so we're going to do that again this year. Um, not the exact same thing we did last year. This is an Advent reading plan uh, actually put together by John Piper. And uh, it starts, it kicks off on December 1st, which would be tomorrow. So we have 60 of these up here. And uh, so afterwards, if you are interested in, in going through Advent kind of together as a group here, um, you'll take this home with you uh, over the Christmas break, but you'll start tomorrow and, and go through it. That would be awesome. And then, as Scott kind of mentioned, we'll, we'll be kind of seven days into it when we get to our table next week, which will be kind of a little bit of a Christmas-themed stuff. We'll be, we'll be doing a study, but it will be kind of focused towards some of this stuff. So anyway... Afterwards, go ahead and come grab one of these if you're interested in, in joining along with us in that. We'd love to have you do that. Um, if, if this is your, your first time, uh, uh, then, then what? Well, I'll just kind of explain briefly what we do here on Thursday nights. During the first half, someone does just what Scott did on the video, and that is walk us verse by verse through the text, helping us understand it more in depth, helping us understand what the author meant 
when he was writing these things. And then uh, the second person usually gets up and takes one of the kind of the main points of that passage, one of the larger themes of that passage, and then expands on it and teaches and talks on it for a little bit. Usually. Sometimes the second person gets up and takes a small little sliver of that passage, uh, a tiny little nugget of that passage, and decides to spend some time talking about that. And that's what we're doing tonight. Um, I just want to take these, these, I think, three words here. Actually, maybe it's four or five there. Out of verse 10, this idea where Paul says that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Those four four words, I just want to talk a little bit about that um, with you and and kind of dig into what may be behind some of those things. So my my freshman year, uh, I had, sorry, I'm going to do the clock math in my head, make sure I'm going to be done on time. All right. Um, So my freshman year, was it my freshman year? Maybe my sophomore year. I think it was my freshman year. I'm up at college. I'm in the dorms, and there was this guy in our dorms. He was a friend. wasn't one of my like, closest friends, but he was a buddy by the name of Chad. And uh, Chad had somehow, during this year, somehow, I don't know if it was a contest. I don't know if you just go admit your name. I don't know if it's like the, the fifth caller on the radio station gets this, but there's this radio station there, and they decided to do this dating game thing, like live on their radio station one morning. And somehow Chad got on this thing. So there was this... There was this girl who was kind of, the, I don't know, what the, the main, what, bachelorette, I guess, is what she was, and they had her on there, and then they had three guys competing for her love on live radio, and Chad was one of the dudes who got on there. I remember him, he skipped class that day to go there and be, be at this thing, and it was this really crazy, I'd never even heard of anything like this on the radio, but... I knew that I was going to be tuning in to listen to this thing. And so I go back to my room and I turn it on and I'm listening. And sure enough, that's Chad's voice on the radio. And, and Chad brought his A-game, man. He had like all these answers ready. He had even uh, written a song for this girl um, that they let him like play on the radio, which I mean, and he had pretty good voice stuff, which is pretty good because Chad wasn't exactly like a gap model or anything like that. And so... Um, so he, so, but he brought this song and he did all this stuff. And it was kind of like your standard dating game where, where she asked the guys questions and they answer things about themselves and talk a little bit about, and, you know, she kind of evaluates which one she likes and all that stuff. Um, but, uh, but there, there was also a point where they asked her questions or, or the DJ or whoever asked her questions. And, and I remember, I don't remember hardly anything about it except for Chad playing a song, um, and I remember them asking her this question, what do you want to do with your life? And, and I don't even remember a whole lot of her answer, except for, I think, the very first thing that came out of her mouth. Um, I just want to be happy. Like, I, I just want in my life to find happiness. And, and I think in that moment, I think I threw up in my mouth a little bit. And, and I remember rolling my eyes like crazy and just thinking, this is ridiculous. Give me a break. And uh, like to, to me, that idea, I just want to be happy in my life, was like the most shallow, self-centered thing a person could say. And, and I kind of tuned out somewhat on that. All I, know, I remember Chad did not win. Um, but I remember even thinking, good riddance, man. Like... Who, who cares about this girl who's, who's that child? That, that idea, and, and I'd heard a number of people say that, man. In, all I want, I just want to be happy. I just want to find happiness in life. But like I said, that always sounded so shallow and selfish to me. 
this idea that you would just make life about you and your own happiness and trying to, to find happiness in the things that you can do. And, and I'm thinking about the way that that kind of causes problems when people just seek their happiness. I, I hated that idea and saw it as so, um, so small, so little. But, but that's honestly a huge idea for most, no, all people in the world, whether they would say that out loud or not, like everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to find happiness in their life. And not just that, we, we want it for others. That's one of the more common answers people will say about loved ones. Um, you go and you're trying to make a decision about what you're going to do after college, and so you go to your friend to ask them for advice, or, or you're trying to figure out if you should break up with your boyfriend or not, and you go to talk to your friend to ask them for advice, and, and what's one of the most common things they'll say in that moment? Listen, I, whatever you do, I just want you to be happy. I, I just want you to do what makes you happy, which, which, by the way, seems a little bit less selfish to me and, and, and sounds way less shallow because it's not a self-centered thing. It's for somebody else. I want you to experience happiness in your life. That actually seems like a pretty kind thing. Uh, I got a friend who about 10 years ago started dating a girl, and uh, they were getting pretty serious, and so he went back to uh, visit her parents uh, for the first time. And, and somewhere along the line while he was back, visiting her, they had, uh, he and her dad had taken a little trip to like the supermarket or whatever, going to the store to pick up some stuff. And so it was just him and the dad, and, and he was having this conversation, and they were kind of getting to know each other and having a conversation about the girlfriend. Um, and at one point along the line, uh, my friend remembers the dad saying this specific thing, I just want my daughter to be happy. I think they were talking about, you know, the direction that this relationship was progressing in. And the dad just said, I just want my daughter to be happy. And, uh, and my friend said he, he remembered thinking how cool that was to have a dad that cared about his daughter's happiness and, and wanted um, to be able to help her experience joy in her life, happiness in her life. So here's the question. Do we have a dad like that? Does God want you to be happy? Does God care whether or not you're happy? Is that a priority for him? Or is that not really that important? What's the answer to that question? Um, some have said, yes, God wants you to be happy. After all, Jesus is the one who said, um, if, you, uh, if, if your sinful fathers on earth know how to give good gifts, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to his children? Like, why wouldn't God be able to give good and pleasing things? Why wouldn't, if, if my friend's girlfriend's dad um, wants his child to be happy, does not the, our Heavenly Father, who is far better than my friend's girlfriend's dad, that's hard to say, um, far better than that dad, doesn't, would not he seek our joy and our happiness here on this earth? Wouldn't he go for those things as well? Um, I, I can't conceive of a God who just wants us to be miserable all the time. Wouldn't it ring true that he wants us to be happy? Jesus says in John 10.10 10, that I came that, that you might have life and have it to the full. Or that you might have life and have it more abundantly. 
this idea. And so a number of people will read and go, this is, Jesus has said this, that, that, that he came for us to experience an abundant life. So let's say to have our best life now, to be able to enjoy all that this world has to offer. That's what Jesus came for. Paul will say in the book of Galatians that joy, happiness, is a fruit of the Spirit. Otherwise, a sign that the Spirit is in you is if you are happy. And if that's true, doesn't that mean that when God puts His Holy Spirit in you, that if, if a result is that you're happy, doesn't that mean that God wants you to be happy? But, if we're going to go that direction, there's some questions that need to be answered. Like, why does, God, why does Paul talk about his life the way he does so often in 2 Corinthians if what God wants is for you to be happy. Why does Paul talk so much, like in chapter 1, where he talks about how he shares in the sufferings of Christ? Or in chapter 4, when he talks about being this jar of clay that is beat up and, and bruised and weak and tattered? Like, if God wants happiness so much, how would he let this man who is obeying him so fervently experience so much hardship and suffering and difficulty? Um, Paul says in chapter 2, I wrote to you out of affliction and anguish of heart. He says, I visited you and I experienced great sorrow in my trip to you. Why would Paul say that if the Christian life was designed to be happy, if that's what God wants for you? Why is it that Jesus says that the Son of Man did not, that's himself, that he did not come to be served, that is to get what he wants out of life, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. And then he also turns to his disciples and says, and that's what you ought to be like too. How can we say that what God wants most is for us to be happy if that's the truth there and that's the way that happens? And also I get caught up in this question if, or this idea that so much of the hurt and pain and hardship that people experience in life are the result of other people who are just trying to be happy. Because when other people seek their own happiness, that they often cause pain and unhappiness to others. My friend's girlfriend's dad said that he just wanted his daughter to be happy. And my friend was kind of impressed by that 10 years ago when he first heard that, this dad who loved his daughter so much. He was um, less impressed by that five years ago when that daughter... Um, and my friend were married, and that daughter decided that she wanted to leave my friend for another man. And the dad, who, who was a Christian, or called himself that, I think probably was a Christian, um, was okay with his daughter leaving her husband, because after all, I, I want you to do what's going to make you happy, sweetheart. And, and, and so often when people just want to be happy and, and, and when we live as though the point of our life is to be happy is when we live as though what God wants most is for me to be happy, right? God doesn't want me to be miserable. It causes so much pain and heartache to the rest of the world around us. And so there are a lot of people who will say, no, that's not what God wants for you is your happiness. That's not the main point. God is not here to make you happy. He's not here for you. You are here for Him. God wants us to live for something bigger than just our own happiness, something deeper than that. The point of living is not for me to be happy. It's for me to be holy. It's for me to be righteous. It's for me to love others. It's for me to, and here's the big one, 
glorify God with my life. My life is designed to glorify Him. And, and that's why I was so sickened by that girl on the radio all those years ago. I wanted to come through the speakers there and say, your happiness is not the point. God doesn't care if you're happy. He cares if you're holy. He cares if you're obedient. That's what He's calling us to. However, freshman Drew, or sophomore Drew, had to answer some questions over the next couple years in regards to that, that point of view or that statement. If God doesn't care about you being happy, why does Paul talk so much about it? Why does Paul say in 2 Corinthians that we work together with you for your joy, Corinthians? That's why we're doing these things, for your joy. Why does he say in the very next passage, which we'll get to in January, I am overflowing with joy. And say things like, I rejoice. Why does he say in Galatians that it's a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in you if you're happy, if you have joy? Why does he, over and over again in Philippians and in other books, command you to be happy? Command you to rejoice. Command you to have joy. That's kind of a crazy thing. We, we don't really think too often of happiness as being something that you can command. Be happy. Be joyful. But, but Paul speaks like that. And the rest of the Bible does too. Why does the rest of the Bible also talk about this idea of joy so much? Why does the psalmist over and over again say things like, You have filled me with greater joy than when their new, than when their new grain and wine abound. If, if God doesn't care about your joy, then why does the psalmist talk so much about how God keeps giving him joy and happiness? Why does John tell us in the book of Revelation that at the end, when God makes everything the way that it's supposed to be, that he will wipe every tear from our eyes, that he will banish sorrow and we will not experience sadness and pain and we will experience joy. If God doesn't care about our joy, then why is he working towards this day when that is all we will know? Those are questions that need to be answered. And Jesus, the very one who... Um, came not to be served but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. Why does Hebrews 10 say that the reason he did that was for the joy set before him? So then what's the answer? Which is it? Does God care about your happiness or not? Does he want you to be happy or not? Here's the point where if you've heard me teach very much, you, you're expecting the answer to be yes or both. I'm actually not going to tell you that tonight. No, there is an answer. There is a truth here. The answer, does God want you to be happy? The answer is yes. God absolutely wants you to be happy. In fact, the problem is not your desire to be happy. The problem is not with this world that everyone desires to be happy. I would say that this desire for happiness, for joy, for pleasure, for enjoyment is intrinsic to being human. That it is, runs deep in you because your Creator put it in you. This desire to pursue joy and to pursue happiness. God placed it there. He wants you to be happy. Here's what God doesn't want. God doesn't want for you to be happy in something that's not Him. That's not because He's selfish. and That's not because He's needy. 
It's not because he needs you to enjoy him for him to feel good about himself. It's because God really does want you to be happy. It's because he truly wants your happiness and he knows that you won't find it anywhere else. My friend's girlfriend's dad, who said that, his, that what he wanted more than anything was for his daughter to be happy, um, was either not telling the truth or he was ignorant. Because when he said to his daughter, when she decided to leave her husband, I just want you to be happy, sweetheart. Do whatever you need to do. That's, that's not actually caring for her happiness. Because being torn away from someone that you've become one flesh with, having to live a life that is separated from your daughter for half of her life because of custody issues, um, Living with a new husband who can never fully trust you because he knows that you're the kind of person who will drop him if you find a man that you like more, that doesn't make a person happy. And so when that dad said, I just want you to be happy, he was either not fully telling the truth or he was ignorant. God does neither of those things. God's not ignorant of what will make you happy, of what will bring you the greatest amount of joy. He knows that it's only him. He knows that if you chase it in other things that you won't find it. And that's why he doesn't care about your happiness just for the sake of your happiness. And he doesn't want you to find it in other things. He wants you to find it in what is true. Augustine said this many years ago. Many people are miserable because they love what ought not to be loved and are still more miserable when they enjoy it. I'm going to read that again because that's profound. Many people are miserable because they love what ought not to be loved and are still more miserable when they enjoy it. That is, there are a lot of people who run after these things that they were never meant to run after and they're sad and miserable for it. And here's what I found, Augustine says, when they finally catch it and get their arms around it, they find themselves to be even more miserable still. They find that that never fully satisfies them, that they never find joy in it. Augustine also used this really fascinating um, illustration that when we make happiness itself its own little God and we make our whole life about just finding happiness and when we try to find it in all these other things, he says it's kind of like a person who is hungry, which I think is a really great actually illustration because every person naturally is hungry and there's nothing wrong with being hungry. Just like every person naturally seeks pleasure and joy and enjoyment, and there's nothing wrong with that. But he said it's like a hungry person who is starving and really wants food, and it keeps trying to feed himself on a picture of bread, rather than turning to the person who holds actual bread and can give it to him. He says that's what happens when you try to run after happiness and all these other things. It's like being really hungry and, and finding a piece of paper with bread on it and then eating that. And the truth is that might, for a brief moment, actually kind of help because at least something's in your stomach now. At least it's not empty anymore, but, but the reality is that there is no nutritional value to that 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 can't actually feed you, that that can't do anything for you, and you'll find yourself even more hungry later. Augustine says this is the case when we seek these things. All the world's promises of happiness betray us. Sexuality, a good and right gift from God, but when it is grabbed a hold of as though it is the source of happiness, what we often find is that it holds out pleasure in one hand and then sneaks in shame in the other. 
holds out joy in one hand and then sneaks in a lack of intimacy, a severing of relationships in the other. When we chase after money thinking that's where I will find happiness and security in that, what we find is that it never satisfies any longer than a day or two, that we have to keep running after that. I I think I've shared before my... um, the family that lived, the, the retired couple that lived next to my parents for several years, um, and, and uh, the, the wife was depressed or, or struggled or something. She, she, she really wrestled with being happy. And the way she tried to fill that void um, is, is through stuff. And so she ordered lots of stuff. And my dad said, literally, almost like clockwork, you could look out every day and see the UPS man dropping off a new package. Um, of something to try and fill that void to the point that they went bankrupt. Um, Why? It's because whatever comes in that package on Monday only gives you enough happiness for Monday. And soon enough, like, you've got to have something coming in on Tuesday. You've got to have something coming in on Wednesday. Like, that's not just an issue with what you order on Amazon. That's an issue with whatever trying career you pursue. That's an issue with whatever trying relationship you pursue. If you try and wring your happiness out of something that can't give it to you, it's trying to feed on a picture of bread rather than the real thing. And it will never fully satisfy and it will never be able to fill you up. That's because your happiness can only be as big and as lasting and as full as the things you love. If what you love is temporary and changing and mortal, then your happiness will be temporary and changing and mortal. But if you can find happiness in something, someone, that is permanent and unchanging and lasts forever, then so will your happiness. It's the way it works. And this is what makes Paul's kind of crazy paradox that he throws out here in these chapters so cool when he says in verse 8 that um, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything is Paul, the first half of all of those are temporary changing circumstances. And the second half of those things are permanent unchanging circumstances. God, namely. What we have in God. And even though this keeps happening, I can be sorrowful, but I can rejoice. Even though I'm dying, I'm alive. Even though I have nothing, I have everything. Because I have these things together. And think of the way that God is glorified in that. For those of you who are actually starting to wonder this question, whoa, 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 where does the whole glory to God piece come in, Drew? Where does the whole glory, because I, I know that that's got to be important, that, that more important than us being happy is us glorifying God, right? If, if you've been around here, you hear us talk about that, this gospel-centered life that makes everything about trying to live out who Jesus is and what he's done and trying to glorify God in that. And you are right in that, but, but you're wrong if you think that those two things are different from each other. Um, we actually give God glory when we satisfy ourselves in Him. You've probably heard us quote the, the first, very first question and answer of the shorter Westminster Catechism. Um, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now notice, it does not say the chief ends, plural. 
The chief end, singular, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Piper, John Piper, guy who wrote our little Advent thing, says it like this, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And, and that's what Paul lives out here. That's why he says, let me, let me stand up and commend my ministry to you. Do you see what I have gone through and do you see the joy that I still have in God in those things? That when we are able to take this intrinsic thing in us, this God-given desire for enjoyment, for pleasure, for joy and happiness, and then aim it at the one thing that can give it to us, God, when we are able to feed on Him and to, and to take our joy from Him and find it in Him, that He is honored in that, that He is glorified in that, that He is seen as the all-satisfying Creator that He really is when we do those things. So, what if that's not you? What if you're not happy? What if you don't delight in God? If God wants you to be happy, if God placed that in you, if a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in you is that you take joy in God, what if that's not you? Let me give you five possible reasons that might be true. And then five things you can do. Five reasons that you might not be joyful in God, that you might not be happy in Him. Number one, you're normal. Number one, you're a normal human being. And this idea of delighting in God, of finding our satisfaction in Him and finding our joy is right and true and we ought to pursue it, but it is something that you grow in and not something that just automatically happens overnight. And so you might just be normal and trying to grow and learn in this area. Also, you may be going through a particular phase of this in your life. I believe this, that my marriage ought to be a marriage in which I delight in my wife in which I take joy in her, in which I am in love with her, but I also believe that that will not be what my marriage looks like every day. That there are days when I just don't delight in my wife. There are days when she's just annoyed with me. Okay? There are days when those romantic feelings aren't there. And the answer is not, well, it doesn't matter, just be committed to each other. Okay? That's not the answer. The answer also, though, is not, is not, well, you should freak out because you should always feel that way. No, the answer is on the days that I don't delight in her, I, I love her anyway. I, I do the things that are loving anyway. I'm getting ahead of myself here. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in just a, a bit. Here's a second reason that you might not be finding joy in God, and that is because you are chasing happiness in other things. Um, that your own sin you keep believing is going to be your happiness. Even though, even though history has told you a million times that it doesn't work that way, um, you keep deceiving yourself into that or being deceived into that. Or, or maybe not even sin, maybe good things. Relationship or your school or whatever it is that you keep trying to find it and those things are hindering. You, you keep reaching for that picture of bread rather than bread itself. And for that reason, you cannot find joy and satisfaction in what is true in God it could be that you're trying to find satisfaction in God plus. That, that God is, I mean, God will get me most of the way there, but I still need this, and it's not going to work that way. Number three, you might not be very happy right now just because you're going through a really difficult time. It could just be that. 
Um, tomorrow afternoon, my wife and I will go to a funeral for a, a little girl who passed away at the age of three. She may have made it to four, uh, at the age of three years old. I'm a family from our church. And, and like, it is understandable if the parents tomorrow are not dancing down the aisles when we walk in for that funeral. Like, it's, they're going to be experiencing grief and sadness in that. And, and all of us experience times like that. And that might be happening in your life. That, that may be a reason. You don't have to feel guilty for that. Number four, you might honestly be struggling with, like, clinical depression, um, with, with difficulty, with, with anxiety, with those kinds of things. That, that may be a very physiological, psychological thing that is going on in your life. Number five, you might be using God as a means rather than an end. Um, that you are trying that that you are trying to get happiness out of Him, rather than trying to get Him. Um, Tim Keller says this is kind of the issue with God and happiness. Um, the really crazy thing is that if you seek God first, you get both, and if you seek happiness, you get neither. Um, and and if, you, if you are viewing God as someone who's going to make you feel better, that's going to soothe your conscience, that's just going to make life feel easier, you're not going to get the joy out of pursuing Him that you were meant to. You're making Him a means to an end rather than the end itself. Five things you can do and then we'll be done. Number one, if you're not happy in God, if you're not finding joy in Him, the first thing is this, when you're not feeling it, act as though you are. This is what C.S. Lewis says is the way that you ought to treat someone that you don't like. If you don't love someone, the best way to start loving them is pretend as though you already do. And what you find often is that the, the heart follows the actions of the body. And, and by the way, this is the same that's true in marriage. The phrase I always use, I, I use a lot of times in describing this to either husbands or wives or to people who are, um, who are struggling in their own relationship with God. I say, take out the trash. What I mean by that is, it doesn't matter whether you're feeling it or not, you still ought to do things around the house that serve your spouse. Take out the trash, whether you're feeling it or not. And I would say the same thing in your relationship with God, whether you're feeling it or not, you need to come um, pursue Him in worship. You need to come sing to Him even when you don't feel like singing. Um, you need to keep running after Him even when you don't feel like, you need to obey when you don't feel like obeying. And, and for this generation, that can feel disingenuous, but it's not. Listen, there are going to be days when you don't feel like going to work in your job, and no one's going to call you a hypocrite if you get up and go to work anyway. Well, that's what you do. Um, and, and same in your marriage. It's, you're not a hypocrite if you act loving towards your spouse, even when you don't feel a lot of affection towards them. And so you start by just living this life anyway. The second thing that you need to do in order to gain joy is repent and kill your sin. The Bible says over and over again that we put to death our sin. If you want to find joy in God, then you need to put away the things that are stealing your joy. That whole, that little verse right there, you remember what comes right before when Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full? It says, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. When you follow the ways of the world, then all of those, that joy gets stolen away from you. Number three, you need to fight to see Jesus and experience Him. To know Him and His Word. Psalm 34, 8 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
You need to make time to seek Him in His Word. You need to make time to seek Him in prayer. You need to make sure that you're showing up to worship with God's people, that you're showing up to hear the Word taught, whether you're feeling it or not. You need to fight for joy. Number four, do not confuse being chipper, outgoing, naive, or glib with real joy. Paul says that I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And, and I think that there is a way, the family tomorrow who's, who, who will be going to the funeral for, they're not supposed to be bubbly when they walk in that room tomorrow. They're not supposed to be outgoing. That's not what joy means. You can be those things and be joyful. But there is a way of having, I think, a, a, a joy even in the middle of sorrow, just like Paul experienced, even in the middle of grief. You can, even when you're sad, enjoy a good cup of coffee. You can, even when you're sad or hurting, enjoy a really good meal or enjoy a really good book. And you can, even in the middle of deep pain and grief, enjoy God in worship. It, it might not make you dance, it might not make you, it might, but, but you can still find joy in that. Last is uh, this, uh, talk to someone like there really is, I understand this, even though I'm not able to fully get in. Like, there, there is truth that some of us are experiencing actual, like, physiological things, chemical imbalances. There's some of us who are experiencing trauma um, that we have not dealt with, and, and these things work their way into depression with us and, and, and work their way into major issues that make it difficult for us to find joy and pleasure in God and in life. And I'm telling you, don't, um, don't try and just pull yourself up by your bootstraps if that's you. Um, ask God for help. That could be number six in this. Ask God to give you joy in these things. But talk to someone. Talk to a friend. Talk to Rachel or Scott or myself. And, and, and probably at some point, I mean, depending you know, on, on where you're at, perhaps talk to a counselor. And that's okay um, to do those things. Um, so... Five possible reasons you might not be. Five things you can do. I believe this, that God will find um, that God is glorified in you when you are satisfied in Him. And that's what I want for you. That's what I, that's what I want for my own life. Can I, uh, can I tell you that I'm speaking from a period of weakness tonight? Um, that, I didn't even, that I didn't even walk in this room with a lot of joy in my heart today. Um, I spent, that, that I, I found a lot of time just being stressed today over this lesson on happiness that I was supposed to give. I found myself being impatient with my kids. I found myself not really wanting to chat with people very much, so um, I'm, not, I'm not talking um, as a dude who's got this all figured out. I'm, I'm talking as a guy who, who needs the Lord to open my own eyes to Him and His goodness and, and who needs to experience some time um, before Him and letting Him shape my hearts and my desires that I would love Him more. And so um, that's what I want for you, and that's what I want for me. And uh, so what we'll do is I, I want to give you just a few minutes of, uh, of quiet to maybe look over those five things and ask, Lord, are any one of these five things me? Is this what's keeping me from finding my joy and my delight in you? And then to start asking, um, what do I need to do? Um, how do you want me to respond to this, God? And then, and then fortunately, you've got a chance right away. Um, you got a chance to sing to him about his goodness. And we'll do that together for a little bit as we wrap up tonight. But take a few minutes and, and ask God what he wants, um, what he may be trying to show you about yourself tonight and himself.